Amen. going to have to hold on to this today, keep from coughing, so I apologize if it's distracting. Um, God the Father and God the Son get a lot of attention during a worship service. So God the Holy Spirit quite humble and doesn't really draw attention to himself, but let me tell you what he does in our worship. Anytime you're able to sing a word of true praise to God. It's because the Holy Spirit is working. Anytime that you are able to pray a prayer that honors God's and is said and truly in Jesus' name, it is because the Spirit is working. Anytime that I'm able to preach a sensible word from the Bible, and anytime that you are able to hear that word and understand it, it is because the Holy Spirit of God is working. Let us call on the Holy Spirit to work in us now. Holy Spirit, you are the reason that any good at all comes out of us because of your indwelling in us and work within us. We can't claim any credit for it. And we're so glad for the work you do because you direct our eyes, our hearts, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Show us our Savior right now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Passage to, uh, for us today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 5. You'll find it on the back of your bulletin. I included from verse 2. It's where uh, Pastor John preached from last week. We're in a series now. But uh, we'll start reading from verse 9. John chapter 5, verse 9 through 17. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. May God bless this reading of his word. As I said, we're in a new series. Uh, won't be a terribly long series, but a series in the Gospel of John. I think chapter 5 through 7, if I recall correctly. And the basic structure of the series is that Jesus makes us mad, and then Jesus makes us glad. That Jesus makes us mad. He exposes our hearts and shows to us what we were holding on to, what we really wanted, and how that's not what he came to help us with. 
but then he makes us glad by showing us, no, he came to bring us so much more, more than we expected, more than we ever could have desired. That is why Jesus came. And it shouldn't surprise anyone that this is Jesus' MO, his modest apparandi, right, what he came to do. Um, you know, just we're going to read that Jesus really came to pick a fight. But in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, 38, and 39, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying that he didn't come to just kind of be a general, you know, just general savior and to just help universally you know, with things that we thought we, we needed. He came and he would be a dividing line. And that from him, there would either be eternal life, true life, and joy and love, or you would fall outside of him. And that there is no choice other than those two. And so, the three points for today's lesson, for today's sermon, are Jesus is greater than our earth, earthly comfort. Jesus is greater than our religious observance. And Jesus is greater than our death and our sin. Jesus is greater than our earthly comfort. In fact, I think the song that uh, Lisa and Mary Alice helped, helped, with, helped us with just almost says it better than what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say what I had to say anyway because I prepared it. So, John chapter uh, 5, verse 6, which Pastor John read last week, all right, to give you a little backdrop. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, this guy had been lame from birth, so 38 years of lameness, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, let me tell you that the right answer to that question is yes. If you've been sitting on your butt for 38 years unable to do anything else, and someone comes along who actually has the ability to heal you, if he asks you, do you want to be healed, the right answer is yes, all right? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. As you can see, that's not a yes. That's an excuse. Instead of giving the right answer, he gives excuses. And so Jesus, knowing this man's heart, because Jesus knew every person's heart, is really asking, don't you want to be made well? Because that is what you should want. And so Jesus then does what the guy doesn't even ask for. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. See, figure that every time that someone got healed in the Gospels and in the Acts, um, just that they were really happy about it. Interestingly, when you look closer at this particular miracle, you don't see that gratitude. You don't see that excitement. You don't see someone begging and yelling, son of David, have mercy on me two people telling him to shut up and him still saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. Hoping, 
hoping against all hope that Jesus will come, that he listens and cares. We don't see that here. See, we see Jesus doing what we expect him to be doing. Zephaniah 3.19 talks about Jesus, right? So the Old Testament prophecy talks about what Jesus would be like. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. So the Old Testament told us what to expect about Jesus. Or Jesus, talking, and Pastor John said this last week too, Jesus told John the Baptist, John the Baptist in jail, and wondering, wait, Jesus is here, I'm still in jail. So he sends his followers to Jesus asking, are you the one we have been waiting for, or should we wait for someone else? And Jesus replies, tell him that the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. We see Jesus doing what he said he'd come to do. John chapter 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But this guy, lame guy, or previously lame guy at this point, he is not coming with a response of need or gratitude. See, you know what he reminds me of? If you've ever watched the animated Pixar movie, The Incredibles, if you haven't, why have you not watched that movie yet? So, The Incredibles, all right? It's a superhero movie, and in that movie, so toward the beginning, there's a guy jumping to his death. He's trying to commit suicide. Mr. Incredible sees that guy, takes a running jump, flies, and catches him. And, like, you know, just they crash through a building's window and tumble, and the guy's all, like, broken and everything. But Mr. Incredible saves him. And what does he do in response? In the following scene, they're in a courtroom. This guy sued Mr. Incredible. Sued him. And his lawyer, it's a, it's a, uh, quote, my client didn't ask to be saved. My client didn't want to be saved. And the injuries re received from Mr. Incredible's so-called actions caused him daily pain. And then Mr. Incredible yells, hey, I saved your life. And the guy replies, you didn't save my life. You ruined my death. That's what you did. And that's what we're seeing with this guy right here. You didn't give me legs to walk. You ruined my lameness. You know, it's quite possible, one commentator says, that because of generosity laws and rules that uh, people had to follow, that this man might have been making out quite nicely. It was a very public place. Lots of people would walk by looking to see if someone would get healed that day by the pool. Don't know, don't know if the pool actually worked or not, ever. But, you know, he was there, and people would give alms to the beggars. So it's quite, quite possible that he made a comfortable living that way, and he was satisfied with his life. He was comfortable, and that's all he wanted. And this shows that the only time you don't have gratitude when someone gives you an amazing gift is when it doesn't mean that much to you. It's like, a, you know, if we think about it today, it's like someone who is paralyzed, now being able to walk, complaining that he won't receive his disability checks anymore. But Jesus comes and gives full and complete healing. 
I mean, think about it. This guy's never walked before in his life. The most that he's ever, ever done is seen other people walk. Now, animals, if you've ever seen a foal being born or a baby cow or whatever, you know, just, you see that within seconds, they're up on their legs, right? I mean, a little wobbly at first, but then first day, within the first hour, they're up on their legs. Not so us people, right? Abby took nine months until she could claw her way up to something and stand in 10 months before she could start taking tottering steps. But this man, Jesus Christ didn't just give him fullness of legs, the use of his legs. He gave him the ability to use them. What would come from experience and trial and error, Jesus Christ gave even that. That was how complete this healing was. Complete, like the stilling of the waters on that lake. So it just makes all the more surprising this man's reaction. He should have been like the blind guy in John chapter 9 that, uh, that Terry and Lisa and Bernie read for us this morning. All right, what was that guy's response after Jesus gave him his sight? Very similar to what we read here in this text. The religious leaders came up to him and said, Who is it that did this for you? But unlike previously lame guy, previously blind guy, he didn't get to see Jesus, remember? He has an excuse. He was actually blind. And he says, why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never before, since the world began, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do Nothing. This guy already had a testimony and he didn't even know Jesus yet. And this guy got run out of the synagogue because the religious leaders didn't like hearing him say this. And Jesus found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the guy says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus says, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And now we're looking for right responses. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. That's what you do. That's what's missing here. Because this man did not want a Jesus who was greater than his earthly comfort. But then, believe it or not, it gets worse. Second point, Jesus is greater than our religious observance. From verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. All right, do you know what that's like? It's like Superman flying by in the air, flying in this world. And you trying to write him a ticket for jaywalking and speeding. All right? Or, if that's too fantastical, try this. It's like somehow you were able to woo LeBron James away from the NBA, from those fantastic courts, to your little driveway, to the hoop that you have over your garage, and that you, little you, got to do a one-on-one -on -one with LeBron. And naturally what would happen is he would just dunk on your head because you are sorry. But then... After that moment, you call time. 
LeBron, you didn't do that right. Let me show you how it's done. These guys, the religious leaders, are trying to tell the one who is the literal Lord of the Sabbath what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath. And just, you know, I'm not caricaturing them. Verse 16 says this, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the the Jews that are being referred to in the Bible here, the religious leaders of that day, and again, Pastor John, I thought, said very wonderfully, this is not uh, the Bible trying to be politically incorrect. The Gospel of John was written by a Jew. Jesus was born a Jew, all right? So this is not about that. This is simply shorthand for saying the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, the ones who told people how they ought to leave, and the Sadducees, the people who ran the temple and observance. And the Pharisees made good bank on them getting to tell everyone, this is what you're not supposed to do. In fact, there were 39 classifications of work. They made it that clear that you could not do on the Sabbath so that you would not violate the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's what they were all about, saying, don't do these things. And by, doing, by not doing these things, you are keeping the Sabbath holy. So things like spitting. There's the, for the blind guy, Jesus spat and made mud. That's not allowed, not because spitting is vulgar, but because that spit mixed with that mud makes mud a building material. That's work. Or doing more than one stitch. That's work. I guess we should be generous that they, were, they allowed one stitch, although I don't, can't think of too many times that one stitch is useful to you, but... What they were showing... Now, mind you, they heard and saw everything else that was being recorded here. They knew lame people were being made into walkers. They knew that blind people were being made into seers, that deaf people were being made into hearers. They saw all of this stuff. And they knew from the Bible, from their Bible, the Old Testament, that only God could do these things. It's not like anyone else has walked the earth and done these things. But their problem was how he was doing it, particularly when he was doing it. As if to say, we'd be satisfied with you, Jesus, with everything that you were doing. We're so glad you're here, except... Could you just not do it on this day? So, what they're showing here, even if they didn't believe that Jesus was God, if they just simply believed that he was at least from God, because only someone who was from God could be doing these things, what they're saying is, as wonderful as those things are, These things are more important to us. This religious observance, what we do, and particularly what we don't do, that is what we believe is important to God. So in that sense, they wanted a Savior who was like them because they were waiting for a Messiah. 
but they wanted a Messiah made in their image, one who would validate them for everything that they thought and were teaching and came up with. One who would come and say, you guys have been doing it great. I wouldn't change a thing. Everyone should be like you. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he came saying that there is he is greater than their religious observance. You know, and it's kind of a funny thing to think that you could actually grow closer to someone, closer to God in particular, by the avoidance of things. Have you ever tried defining a relationship based on what you won't do with or for that person? Or if you want to have a terrible week in marriage, for those of you who are married, try it this week. Just make your entire relationship based on what you don't do, what you won't do. I won't have an affair, okay? I won't leave the toilet seat up. I won't, you know, just leave the laundry lying around. At this point, some of you are thinking that, hey, that sounds pretty good, all right? But there is nothing that says do move toward the other in love. Do hold them with affection. Do say that you love them. It's nonsensical to think that you could draw closer to someone in merely the avoidance of things, and yet that is exactly what we are being told that these religious leaders were saying. And I have to say that lots of people, I mean, you know, anytime you look at TV, you know, just in how Christians are portrayed, it makes us look like we're just killjoys, that it's all about what you can't do, what you shouldn't do, what God doesn't want you to do. So this, this theme of putting religious observance over Jesus, you know, it's a common theme from that day till now. And the irony is that these religious leaders, they were plotting Plotting to kill Jesus. Now, plotting is planning, and planning is work. And so they themselves were working on the Sabbath to murder someone else. You know, that, that's another commandment, isn't it? Thou shalt not murder. So malice of forethought, premeditated killing of someone else. And so just a... So the planning was work, and then the entire work that they were trying to commit themselves to doing wasn't exactly good either. And so, we see in this lame man and in the religious leaders just these things that should warn us, warn our hearts. Because Jesus came greater than our, these things, that our earthly convenience, comfort, and health, and greater than what we would do for God. In fact, he came to show us that he was greater than our sin and our death. See, neither the lame man nor the religious leaders thought they needed anything from Jesus. But in John chapter 20, verse 31, we see why this was all written. All right, John actually refers to these miracles. There's a word for miracle in, in Greek, but he likes to use the word signs. Now, signs point to things. You know, speed limit sign, don't go faster than this. A detour sign, go that way. Or one-way sign, don't come this way. Signs point to things. What are these signs of, what are these miracles? Signs pointing to. And John chapter 20, verse 31, 
This gospel writer gives us a legend to understand this map by. Have you ever read a map? The little box in the corner is called a legend. It tells you, all right, this inch represents this many miles, and these characters and symbols mean this. You need the legend in order to understand the map. And John gives to us a legend to understand his gospel. Chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So all that is written, including the recording of this miracle, is a sign to show Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life in his name. And so what is this healing about? What is it a sign of? Because it wasn't just for the lame guy, and it wasn't just for the religious leaders to observe. It was for us. See, that lameness, you can interpret that as deadness of his legs, just like blindness is deadness of the eyes, deafness, deafness, deadness of the ears. It is physical death, but... It is pointing to a deeper spiritual reality and truth. That in your heart, in your spirit, you are dead. And the Bible tells us this when it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. And tells us the penalty for that sin. The wages of sin is death. And so all of these miracles... Jesus was showing in a physical, invisible way what he came to do for us in our spirits because we are already dead in our transgressions. And so physically, you know, might have been, you know, just alive and just dead in the legs or the eyes or whatever else. But dead in our spirits, we can't even cry out to God. We are dead that way, having no life unless a Savior comes near. And that's what this healing is about. And that's the warning of this lame person. Because he was comfortable in his deadness. Just like that guy that Mr. Incredible saved. You didn't save my life, you ruined my death. And for those who are comfortable in their situations, maybe things are just how you like it now. Your income is just enough to beat down your mortgage. All right, your health is just enough that you're able to enjoy just all these things in life. Your kids are just good enough that you can contain, you can just retain your sanity. And so we may not want a Jesus who is greater and might bring us into situations that are harder than what we have. But is that how God deals with us? And you and I know, as even as Elias prayed in this world with this ridiculous lack of peace that is out there, this isn't how God ordinarily deals with us. Look at William Carey, that, missionary to, that great missionary to India. What did he lose in bringing the gospel to India? He lost first a son, and then another son, and then his wife, to dementia and insanity and ultimately to death. And he would definitely say, nope, it's definitely not earthly comfort. That's the main priority that the Lord came to bring us. 
Jesus himself said, they persecuted me, they will persecute you for my name's sake. And so, we can be like that lame man, not wanting any more of Jesus than we've got. Jesus, I believe in you. I can say that Apostles' Creed. Just really like how things are going right now. It's not something that I can ever say to you or something that even someone, or someone else could say to you. It's only something that you need to, can investigate your heart to see if, that, if that's a heart that is residing in you. Or, let's look at the religious leaders and their, and their uh, observance of the law. They were saying that they wanted what they could do. They wanted to hold on to what they could do so that they could wave it before God and say, I did this for you. Don't you love me? You kind of owe me because I was so good. I withheld from doing all kinds of things. I could have made so much more money if I worked on the Sabbath. I could have just uh, done so many more fun things if I didn't have to worry about all these restrictions. Actually, I can say that I was very familiar and comfortable with this, not comfortable, but I knew this thinking, this way of life. Uh, in, high, in high school, uh, just, yeah, definitely when I was in youth group, uh, in church, and, you know, son of a pastor and all that, but I was really afraid of going to hell. I just, you know, one, if, if I could say that my belief was just, had one central thing in it, it was fear of hell. And that somehow I would end up in it. Now, I had the gospel preached. You know, it might have been accented. It might have been a little clumsily or whatever. But had the gospel preached to me. I read the Bible by like 13, no, 12 times by the time I hit high school. So I knew what was in it. And I still had this fear of hell. And so I said, well, you know what? Got to do something about this. So I set myself to do every good thing that I could do to hedge my bets. All right, I wasn't just in youth group. I was active. I was not just a youth group officer. I was the president. I wasn't just, I was on worship team. I was a guitarist. I definitely wasn't the best guitarist. I was a vocalist. I really was the worst vocalist. And then eventually I was the praise team leader the same year that I was the youth group president. So everything was just bad all around. Um, what else did I do? I was a Sunday school teacher, so I led Bible study. I didn't curse. I wore Christian t-shirts at school. I uh, just, everything that I could do. Because if your life is about the work that you do, and that's how God is going to treat you, then don't, don't do it halfway. Go all the ridiculous way. Be frenzied about it. That's your choice. That's, that's, you know, if you want to look at it and say, all right, I want God to deal well with me by, on, based on what I do, then don't let up for a second ever because you're accountable for every moment. Now, the glaring flaw in that awesome theology is thinking that you're starting off from a place where you're okay and all you'd have to do is continue that train. But again, what I said, all have sinned already. All already fall short of the glory of God. All are dead 
in their transgression. And so it is not about this work that we do. Because that is not how or why God loves us. And, now, you know, it sounds like we have the lame guy and we have the religious leaders. And not to be warned, not to follow. You know, we can actually today combine these two errors. We can combine them. We do this subtly when we ask for God's will in our lives. It sounds really, really good. You know, it actually sounds kind of like the Lord's Prayer. You know, just... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to know your will for me, God. But, especially when young people <laughs> just uh, say this prayer. You guys who are looking to each other, yes, I'm talking about you. So, when you're asking this, I want to know God's will for my life. You're imagining that if you knew God's will and did that, that you would get also the things that you are asking for. I want to know God's will for my life, which college I should go to, because if I go there, then, then I will rank out pretty well so that I can get into the grad school I'm looking for to get the job that I'm looking at. All right? Or, Lord, I want to know if it's your will, if it's this boy or this girl that you know, just, I, I should ask out. As if to say that, all right, if it's God's will, then it's going to work out, and I'm going to get a girlfriend out of this situation. Yeah, it never worked for me. So, actually, yeah, it worked once. So, we can think by following God, we will avoid mistakes and increase our prosperity. Do you see how that works? Where it's religious observance tied with the things that make us comfortable in this life, and that's what we want. But my friends, Jesus is greater. You know, just all of this work that it boils down to, all of this, this Sabbath, this rest, what it's pointing to, we see it in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. What do we need? So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There's a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for those who have entered God's rest. What does it mean to enter into God's rest? That's the point. That's what Sabbath is saying. Set it apart. Make it holy. Remember it. What are you supposed to remember? That you have a God. He is your home. So, like the hymn says, cast your deadly doing down. Because it won't do any good for you. They're like filthy rags before God, if that's what you're counting on. Because it's not about the work that you do. It's not about anything that you could avoid or head toward. It is the fact that our Savior has come near to be Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was telling these religious leaders, Sabbath, it's about him. The rest, the only rest that we can find is in him. Because he is the only one 
who has done it all. He is the only one who has perfectly observed the law. He is the one who gave up every heavenly comfort to deal with us in our pigsty of sin. And then he, take, he took the credit that he deserved for his perfect life and his perfect love of his Father in heaven, and he gave it to us on the cross where he took everything that we deserve, all the blame for our sin, and he hung for it on the cross, experiencing the judgment that we deserved. And so when he said, it is finished, there was, there's not an asterisk in your Bible where Jesus, it says, and Jesus muttered under his breath, along with the stuff that you do. It is finished. His work is finished. Did you catch what it said in verse 17? Jesus answered them on the Sabbath, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Because Jesus is saying, I'm working on the Sabbath just as the Father is working in order to bring about this great salvation. And so I have come that you might find rest, that you might have rest. Jesus calls us to cease from our labors, but those labors that we are trusting in, he calls us to cease from our works, expecting that this is why God will love us and be kind to us. He even tells us to cease, to lay our fears aside, thinking that the things in this life are the things worth holding on to. Thinking that you have a God of these meager expectations. He calls us, saying, I, Jesus says, I will be your home. I am your rest. So you don't want to know what Sabbath is about. Resting from your labors and finding your rest in Christ. You know, it's wonderful that God made us, gave us a pattern of work, 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 and then rest. He made our bodies to need this, but he also knew that in that rest, it's not just to be in a vegetative state. If that were the case, then a sleep, you know, just a sensory deprivation tank is what everyone should do once a, once a week, right? Just to block out everything else that causes stress and makes us like, you know, have to rise and, and do anything. What are we to do on this day where we rest from those labors? We are to find those things that help us find our rest in Jesus Christ. So all of you who are here at worship today, good job. This is a wonderful, restful place as we find in our songs and in our prayers and the word preached. Yes, my Savior, my God. But then, do other things this day. If you carve out just this little slice, I wonder, is that enough of a benefit for you? I think this is a great day to gather with others. In fact, the original Lord's Supper actually had supper attached to it. Be kind of nice. At my last church, I made the May the people do that. Hey, we're all bringing food that day too, so we're going to do this and then we're going to eat together. 
So, well, Barb has provided that for us downstairs. But then to go to each other's homes and to find others who find their rest in Christ, who will help you find your rest in Christ, that would be a good use of the day. Or reading things or watching things that help with that. And do you see how if you engage your imagination, just the day is laid out before you where you can either labor and worry and fear or you can find rest in Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater. That is what we're seeing, the testimony of Scripture and of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I'm going to end with Jefferson Bethke, this quote from Jesus is greater than religion. Jesus does not promise us worldly success. He promises himself. Jesus doesn't promise us riches. He promises a rich life in him. Jesus doesn't promise us easy lives. He promises to be with us. Jesus is greater. In fact, that statement is exactly what you will be proclaiming along with me as we are about to participate in communion. And so I'm going to call Bill Melcher and Don Cameron and Clayton Prue and Kevin Hafey and Amaka Fernandez to come forth to help distribute the elements. Right now, prepare your hearts just for a minute and pray that the Lord would help you receive communion in a worthy manner. If you're joining us for the first time today or if you haven't read this through, inside your bulletin, there's a helpful little section on what we believe about the Lord's Supper. And if it confuses you and you wonder, huh, should I take it today or not? Maybe it's a good day not to, but then to come talk to the elders or the pastors, because we want you. We want all to take communion, but we want you to do it in what the Bible calls a worthy manner, so you don't eat and drink judgment on yourself. We don't want worse to happen to you. We want what is good. We want Christ in your hearts. So if you want to take a moment to read that, for the rest of you, you can pray.